Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. If there's any word I would wipe out of the English language, if I could, would be depressed, not depression, but depressed, because um, it's a word that people essentially employ for the most minimal setbacks in life, such as, oh, I'm so depressed, I applied to graduate school and one of them rejected me, or this person I'm interested in on Tinder didn't respond back, or I'm so depressed, uh, Airbnb I wanted to book for my vacation is not available. And so there's this trivialization of actually something that's very, very serious. And um, comparing what's known as uh, reactive mood disorders such as despairing after a breakup or after a significant loss, which can cause some of the symptoms of depression, but still that isn't the kind of depression that warrants our attention and it's important to know about simply because uh, not just if you have experienced it, like I have at one point in my life, but in case you know someone um, who's struggling with it, it's, uh, it's a significant disease and I hope to show why that's the case. So first, just a little bit about nomenclature uh, there's two different kinds of depression that would warrant treatment. Dystemia, which is um, a milder ver- version of major depressive disorder. Major depressive disorder is known for decompensation, which means uh, uh, significant uh, mood impairment, inability to feel motivated, to feel pleasure, get out of bed, loss of appetite, uh, sleep dysregulation, excessive feelings of guilt and shame and suicidal ideations. When there's not as many suicidal ideations and when somebody can hold down a job, they don't have major depressive disorder, they have dysthemia, which is just in many ways as serious as people with dysthemia eventually can wind up with major depressive disorder. And dysthemia, like major depressive disorder, there's a 50 to 60% remission rate, which means you'll get it, it will be awful, and then even if you follow all the protocols, you have a greater than half chance of re-experiencing it. And the more you experience it, then the percentages go up. So to the point where you might wind up with it. Uh, All depressions have in common something known as anhedonia. That word stems from hedonic. Hedonic is the word that describes someone who craves pleasure all the time. Uh, Anhedonia means the inability to experience pleasure. And all forms of depression have this as a main symptom. If you had uh, cancer, diabetes, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, a significant 
uh, even fatal illness, you could still feel pleasure in your life. You could still feel the connectivity of friends. You could, some people even feel when they get serious diagnosis is they actually feel it helps them prioritize their life and it helps them appreciate the things that are of great value, such as um, fleeting moments of tranquility, experience with friends and in nature and altruism and all that. Someone with major depressive disorder or anhedonia, one of the, the most painful things about it is they get the diagnosis and they won't even be able to feel any pleasure in terms of reprioritizing their life. So what's going on? Well, I'm going to tackle it from first um, a sort of uh, neuropsychology perspective and then a psychological perspective and then I'll talk about what practices, meditative practices, can help us address it. So um, the first thing that is very apparent with people who have uh, major depressive disorder or uh, dysthemia is an overactivation of their sympathetic nervous system. That uh, essentially we all have um, a nervous system that goes back and forth between Sympathetic, which is where you get hyper-alert, hyper-vigilant, anxious, uh, on the guard, looking for threats in a withdrawal mode. And parasympathetic, when you relax and you feel at ease and you approach and you are open to people. When somebody has depression, their, their nervous system swings way over and remains constantly in the sympathetic, anxious setting. And uh, what that results in is a flooding of both cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and adrenaline. And over time, this uh, excessive triggering leads to what's known as psychomotor impairment. And that's a very fancy term for you start to feel, or I would start to feel, exhausted just doing some of the most simple things in life, like getting out of bed, uh, picking up the phone. Uh, you know, you might, somebody with uh, depression might just want to take a shower, uh, and but getting out of bed and simply where's the towel you know, oh my God, that's so much effort. How am I going to find the towel? There, the, the flooding of cortisol and stress hormones exhausts the body and leads to this essentially slowing down of movement and thought. And then that has its own ramifications. When your body is in constant psychomotor impairment, then a part of the brain known as the interpreter, your left hemisphere, which adds thought about everything you're experiencing, when you feel constantly exhausted and overwhelmed, it translates this physiological state of being into pessimism, defeatism. What's the point? There's nothing I can do. I might as well give up. Uh, there's no use. So already, just with the overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system, the psychomotor impairment, and the, it translates into a, essentially thoughts that lead us to want to give up. Now normally when people feel a onset of any kind of negative mood, 
one of the first things they will do is unconsciously start to eat carbs. Carbs is actually one of the most natural ways that people fight an onset of sadness and malaise. Carbs actually trans, uh, transforms into insulin. Insulin stops the release of cortisol. So that's why people who essentially binge eat very quickly start to feel better because they essentially are flooding their body with insulin and glucocorticoid corticoids, I'm going to pronounce that, and that stops some of the release of cortisol. But the problem with depression is that people have significant appetite dysregulation. So very often they will not have the appetite, and the decreased appetite leads to no relief. Um, another issue is people with depression frequently have uh, early morning waking. They fall asleep, but they'll wake up at four or five or six in the morning, hours and hours before they need to do anything, and they'll lie motionless in bed, unable to fall back asleep, but completely exhausted. And if you look at their sleep patterns, they don't have the normal sleep patterns of a person who's getting healthy sleep, where there's this very specific processes of slow alpha wave, deep sleep, uh, REM sleep, and then back through the process. And each one lasts roughly, I, I think, like an hour and a half. Somebody with depression, their sleep patterns are completely disorganized. So they don't feel rested, even if they've slept for five or six hours. Now, in addition to this, the... Uh, the state of being, uh, and this is not as easy to explain, but the combination of the exhaustion, the uh, anxiety associated with constantly having your sympathetic nervous system trigger the, the, uh, the feelings of um, pessimism, very often also leads to uh, excessive ideations of both shame and self-harm. And I'll talk about why, uh, when we get to the psychology part, why the theories are that people have these extremely negative uh, thoughts of, you know, extreme uh, negative self-regard. But there's, in tandem with the exhaustion, the disruptions of sleep, the uh, impairments of uh, appetite, the um, pessimism, there's also very often a lot of obsessive ideations about I'm a failure, I'm worthless, I, I don't deserve to live, there's something wrong with me, and that eventually can lead to self-harm. So what we wind up having is a kind of a vicious circle because essentially what happens is the entire uh, mechanism starts as a... Um, over-activation of the uh, of hypervigilance, the sympathetic nervous system, which triggers a flooding of stress hormones, which leads to exhaustion and pessimism. That leads into negative thoughts, and then those negative thoughts re-trigger the entire cycle. So thoughts actually can, once somebody starts to heal or starts to feel better, they still have the negative ideations which trigger once again the stress, the hypervigilance, the 
the stress hormones and the exhaustion. So it's a vicious cycle, uh, and the result of it is, besides uh, pessimism and negative self-ideations and shame, is anhedonia, a real inability to feel pleasure in life. Now, if you wanted to look at fMRI scans, um, one of the, well, actually fMRIs don't really show this, but we do know that people who are, uh, who have ongoing depression have a marked lack of three absolutely necessary neurotransmitters in their brain. The first is dopamine, which is the reward neurotransmitter that makes you feel rewarded for taking risks and, uh, seeking to ask for help and, uh, to take new opportunities. There's no surprise there. The second lack is a, a norepinephrine, and that's um, a neurotransmitter that allows people to feel powerful, that they can accomplish, that they won't be overwhelmed if they do something. So both the reward and the sense of capability are deprived. And then the third uh, neurotransmitter that's impaired is serotonin, which is, that's the neurotransmitter you feel when after the end of a long, hard day, you come home and you're with somebody you really like and you relax and you feel really comfortable and you feel good and you feel safe. And without serotonin, one's uh, sympathetic nervous system just keeps spinning out, keeps triggering itself, keeps releasing the stress hormones. So, in other forms of anxiety disorders, you could simply give somebody um, a serotonin-based um, uh, uh, med, but in major depressive disorders and dysthemia, uh, people have to take both um, a dopamine reuptake inhibitor and a SSNI, which is... Uh, a class, a new class of antidepressants that has both serotonin and norepinephrine. The good news is that millions of people are taking it. It's very safe, very low. Uh, they're not in any way uh, linked with any serious uh, side effects. Some of the original side effects associated with antidepressants like mood blunting, weight gain, diminished sexual appetite are now long, no longer part of the picture. So... Uh, there is um, medication protocols that do generally work, but they require a lot of patience. If you suddenly were be, you know, if you were dealing with a major depressive event, you went to a psychopharmacologist and he nailed it on the first try what your regime would be, you would still be lucky if they started to take effects in six weeks. So you'd have to sit on it, and probably they would give you some kind of bridge medication like a benzo to hold you over until the antidepressants worked. Now, why is it we feel guilt and shame? Um, this is where the psychology comes in. The psychology is a little easier, I think, and more fun to follow than the, than the understanding the biology. But I would... Uh, just for a moment, say that it's important to note that 
all of the changes that somebody experiences when they're depressed means that their body is literally different than the body of someone who is not who does not have major depressive disorder. The lack of sleep, the lack of appetite, the lack of um, the psychomotor impairment, the uh, diminution of absolutely vital neurotransmitters leads, and plus especially the flooding of stress hormones like cortisol severely attack a person's immune system and they leave people very vulnerable to all kinds of of opportunistic diseases. So Freud, Freud had a wonderfully interesting theory about depression. Um, basically Freud claimed that all people have mixed feelings about their loved ones. We all have uh, both positive and negative. It's, uh, we all have uh, feelings of what he would call uh, desire and aggression. That's what Freud believed were the two main uh, uh, sort of drives that we're all born with as infants and children feel both desire and aggression, Freud maintained, for their caregivers. Uh, since Freud, uh, there's been a lot of modification and there's been a whole new class of uh, psychologists who now basically note that really what we are born with is a desire to attach to people for safety, but we also have a desire to gain distance when we feel someone is clinging, overbearing, uh, someone is essentially enmeshing or controlling. So we are always balancing the need to attach and to withdraw, even in the most important relationships in our life. We're going back and forward. And these two states of approaching and withdrawing are actually constantly linked to um, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. So anyway, Freud maintained that when somebody goes through a breakup or a loss, a normal person who doesn't have depression, they put aside the negative feelings, the aggression, the distance-seeking, and they simply mourn the love that they've lost. And it's a very straightforward process of grieving. But, and here's where Freud gets pretty interesting, uh, Freud said with people who suffer what he called melancholia, that's what we now call depression, Freud said that when that person experiences a loss, they can't put aside the aggression they felt for their loved ones. And instead, they turn that aggression inwards at themselves. So instead of letting go of the anger or aggression that they felt for a mother, a father, a sibling, a lover, during a breakup or after a death, that person still feels the aggression, but they now turn it against themselves, and it, be, it translates into excessive shame and excessive guilt and self-harm. So Freud maintained that uh, depression is aggression turned inwards towards the ego. So that was the dominant psychological theory that held sway for much of the 20th century. Recently, another theory has gotten a lot of uh, sway, which is um, learned helplessness. And this is a pretty easy one to explain. Uh, 
The idea is that in childhood, we learn everything about the world. That's where almost all of our beliefs and all of our underlying emotional expectations and uh, core uh, interpretations and perceptions of life are formed. And so if we're taught in our family systems by a depressed parent or by a parent who is easily overwhelmed, um, that in, when bad things happen, we're powerless. There's nothing we can do that essentially we might as well give up. That uh, cognitive behavioral therapist believes is the underlying root of depression. We learn to be helpless. We learn to believe that when there's a setback or there's a, a series of bad events, we might as well just give up. Some children learn helplessness not because a parent so much models it, but a parent is acting in ways that are completely irrational. And the child believes or concludes that there's nothing you can say or do that can get consistent care and kindness or attention of the parent. And so the child anyway believes it's utterly helpless, that it might as well give up. So... Uh, in this uh, belief, it's a very cognitive approach to the depression based on the idea that it was first actually something we were taught. We were taught to be depressed by those who we grew up with, and then it's something that over time we literally embody, and then it turns into an actual disease. Now... The way that depression is generally most successfully treated is one goes to work with a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist would at first meet with a person on a regular basis to make sure that they got a medication regime correctly. And also a psychiatrist would refer the person to a group uh, treatment where they would meet in a group with other people and they would get some kind of mutual support. But another important quality of treatment is, uh, involves mindfulness meditation. Uh, MBCT or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy has shown remarkable successes, not so much in the first round of of addressing a major depressive event, but in preventing relapses and also remarkably lessening depressive incidences. So people with dysthemia become far less prone to decompensation where they miss connecting with people, where they isolate, where they have significant sleep impairments. So a third major cog be, besides getting the right help, connecting with the community, would be to have a meditation, uh, a proper meditation practice in place. And I'll tell you what, the, well, I'm going to lead you through the actual meditation that you would be taught if you went to work with a mindfulness-based cognitive therapist to treat depression. So the first thing I'm I'm really hitting on the other two because I don't want you to come away uh, f from this talk with the idea that, oh, great, there's a meditation 
that'll solve everything if you know someone's got depression or if you've been working with dysthymia depression. This is not a substitute for getting help and for really following a treatment protocol, okay? But that said, the University of Exeter showed a significant reduction in relapses, and that's huge news. So if you do have a meditation practice, you can expect to recover and not fall back into the pit of um, anhedonia if you keep practicing. So what is it that is taught? Well, the most important thing to address um, depression and prevent relapses is what's called thought noting. What re-triggers people with major depressive and dysthymia is the fact that once the cycle of uh, triggering due to the sympathetic nervous system in any way starts to relax due to finally the person is connected with friends or they've uh, gotten medication or they've uh, taken proactive steps or they've eaten a little, then... Uh, what happens is they start to once again have extremely negative guilt, shame, self-pessimistic, uh, uh, obsessive thoughts. And then that re-triggers the cycle. So what you want to do to prevent relapse is you want to give somebody the tools to help them, one, note the kind of thinking that is triggered by depression, uh, two, to reattribute the thought, which is, that's not me, that's my depression. And then the third is to refocus attention to a safe object that is not triggering. So once again, uh, this meditation, based on the work of some great clinical psychologists like Dan Wagner at Harvard and uh, Cochiopo and um, uh, what are the two guys at Harvard who wrote? I can't remember their names. But anyway, uh, the, un the key with thought noting is you don't try to fight or repress a extremely negative thought. That's one of the first mistakes we do. And Wegner's research shows that the more depressed people uh, are... Uh, encounter a thought that's extremely negative, like, I'm worthless, um, nobody likes me, I haven't accomplished anything in my life. Uh, the first thing they do is they either agree with the thought and believe that it's true, or they try to push the thought entirely out of their mind. Neither approach works. When you try to push a thought out of your mind, what happens is it rebounds. Why does it rebound? Because Wagner's research shows when you try to get rid of something, you establish a subroutine in your unconscious mind that constantly looks out for the negative thought. And it's like, uh-oh, am I gonna, is that thought still there? Am I about to have that thought? I suck. I don't deserve to live. Uh-oh, is it there? And so you re-trigger it again and again and again. So the technique is not trying to push out of awareness the negative thought patterns. It's simply greeting, labeling it, reattributing it. So it's not me. It's a faulty 
circuit in my brain that's interpreting my exhaustion and my stress as there's something wrong with me. It's not true. It's my depression. And third, once you've accepted the thought, allowed it to be there, relabeled it, then focus your attention on something else. So find a really comfortable seated position. So let's just start by trying to relax the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, and there's some techniques actually that can help us essentially start to switch off the ongoing stress response. The midbrain, which houses the sympathetic nervous system, doesn't understand language, so we speak to it through the body. So there's a couple of techniques that help us do that. So let's first start by taking in a really slow in-breath through the nose, and while you do so, if you'd like, lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears, just holding your shoulders up, and then breathe out through the mouth, long, slow out-breath, and drop the shoulders. Good, and if it feels good, gently like pull them a little bit back, like you're, so they open up your chest. And then a second full inhalation through the nose and pull in the belly really tight, holding your belly in, your abdomen, and then breathe out and soften your belly. And then for the third in-breath, squinch the toes, the fists, the buttocks, and clench the jaws, squinch the nose and the eyes and breathe out and relax everything. So the way we've just started to speak to the nervous system is we relaxed the muscles in the vagal vagus nerve which run down the front of the body and that directly has a conduit to the midbrain through the insula. So you can actually speak to some of the most mammalian part of the brain's brain by how you breathe. Breathing out really slowly tells the amygdala, your fear region of the brain, that you're safe. Then relaxing your belly and your chest and the muscles of your face. To further relax, let's try to cultivate that feeling of having fully arrived in life. When you've traveled a long distance to a place you really want to get to. You've gotten off the plane, you've taken a taxi, and you've gotten out of the taxi, and you've gotten to this really remote location. It's really a destination you've longed for, and you put down your bags, and you sit, and then you just drink in the moment, 
and you have no desire to go anywhere, to do anything, there's no one around to please, and even if they were, you wouldn't bother. And any thought about planning for tomorrow or later this evening, you wouldn't think about because you finally arrived in your life. You finally landed in a place that's so unique, so longed for this moment. And when you get to that place, every muscle in your body starts to soften. There's no longer any resistance. You're safe. It's truly a unique, special moment right now. So just keep relaxing the body into that state and fill your mind with events that are actually happening in this wonderful moment. There's the gentle sound of the fan above or air conditioner. There's sounds, very distant sounds of planes. There's the feeling of contact with a cushion. And there's also the sensation of your body breathing, which is something we so take for granted. Every moment of our lives, the body breathing is keeping us alive, yet we so rarely stop and acknowledge and pay attention to the very process that's responsible for our existence. So here's the opportunity to not only really land in life, but pay attention to the body which has done so much for us and try to make your body comfortable. Adjust the neck and the top of the body so that it feels good. Breathe really fully in and slowly out, just a really rewarding breath. And so for a few minutes in silence, we're going to play a meditation game. The game is see how long you can stay present with these sensations, the breath, the sounds of the room, contact sensations, even the lights flickering behind your closed eyelids. So your goal is to stay present, but like in all video games, there's something trying to snag you. And in this case, it's thoughts that when you 
pay attention to them, they suddenly unfold into a whole virtual reality that take you away from this moment. You could think of your awareness like the Pac-Man and the thoughts as little ghosts trailing, trying to get you to turn towards them and then they'll completely consume you and take you into a completely different virtual reality. But the good news is you don't lose when that happens, you simply note, oh, I've disconnected from what's real. And then you just relax and return to the sensations all around you and that's where you get all the bonus points. Because in that moment, you've awakened from an illusion. So everything is worth celebrating in your practice.
So at this point we're going to move into the second part of the meditation. Before we start the second practice, take a moment just to observe some areas of the body to get a baseline sense of how you're feeling right now. Just note the muscles in your face, do they feel relaxed? Do the eyes feel soft or jumpy? Settled or jumpy, I should say. Is the jaw clenched or relaxed? Is the forehead smooth or contracted? Noticing the muscles in the front of the throat, do they feel tight or relaxed? Do your shoulders feel suddenly clenched upwards or released? And your belly, your abdomen, does it feel contracted and pulled in or does it feel soft and pliant? This is the vagal vagus nerve. So, how does the muscle groups in the front of the body feel? And two, is your breath very long and easeful, deep and relaxed, or does it feel labored or shallow? And what is your breath like? Is it a relaxed breath? or the breath of someone that's anxious, cut off, baited. So bearing in mind now how the breath feels and the front of the body feels, that's something you're going to just note how it is. And then I'd like you to bring to mind a recent event that was disappointing, something that was dispiriting or an upcoming event that may be associated with some dread or pessimism. And don't tell the story of it, just bring it to mind, know what it is, have some sense of this triggering event. Now we're going to be on the lookout for two different kinds of thoughts. The first kind is safe thoughts, which are just very functional. What should I do after tonight's class? Did I forget to mail something? Thoughts that have absolutely nothing to do with despair, pessimism, negatively thinking about yourself. And then, of course, there'll be the unsafe thoughts, which will be pessimistic about the future, stress-inducing in terms of comparing ourselves negatively with others. I'll always be alone. I'll never succeed, etc. So the first step is just knowing which kind of thought is present. Two, when you spot an unskillful thought, know that it's not you. It's not who you are, it's just 
a symptom, one part of the brain firing that doesn't represent you. And three, bring your awareness back again to your breath and the front of your body and see what happens to those parts of your experience when that negative thought has appeared. Don't push the negative thought away. Don't climb into it. Just know it's there. And then bring your awareness to the body and breath. And if something's gotten tight, like your stomach or your throat or your jaw is clenched, then breathe and relax, soften. So this new meditation game we're playing is spot the unskillful thought, note it, and then relax whatever's going on in the body beneath it.
So in a moment I'm going to ring the bell. And when you hear the sound, I'd like to suggest that rather than opening your eyes and looking around the room, just open up your eyes enough and to look at the ground in front of you and try to integrate sight into your awareness in such a way that the mindful awareness of your breath and the feelings in the front of your body especially remain in awareness, don't allow thought and sight to push them into the background. The more awareness you have of your body and breath, you not only have a far greater integrated sense of what various regions of the brain are trying to communicate to you, you make smarter decisions, and also full mindfulness that's brought into our daily life is a wonderful technique for developing stress management.